Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Institute. Uh, it's a beautiful, sunny evening, but as I'm sure you'll all agree, we're in some beautiful surroundings in here. You will, no doubt, have all heard about Formula students as they constantly bring on young, innovative engineers who all work to an amazingly open set of regulations every year. You know, we question whether Formula One needs these new, new rules, um, but to give you a little sort of glimpse into Formula Student, this year, 50 teams entered with an electric powertrain, and that number five years ago was just four, so there's a huge change there. Um, do please give Formula Student a follow on social media, on Twitter, they're at Formula Student, and then if, on Facebook if you search for iMechie Formula Student. Um, you can actually ask questions through those social media channels this evening, so do log on now. I know you've just been asked to put your phones to silent, but I'm sure you can quickly do that. Um, on our panel this evening, we have Pat Simmons, the Chief Technical Officer at Williams Formula One. Andy Cowell, the Managing Director at Mercedes-Benz High Performance Powertrains, Kirsty Andrew, the Sales Director at Cosworth, and our very own Motorsport Magazine's Grand Prix Editor, Mark Hughes. I'm sure you all agree that we have a fantastic lineup of people who can tell us from the inside the Formula One paddock what these new rules mean. Um, as I alluded to, we've got a camera over there. And we are actually streaming live to the internet as I speak. So please, when you're speaking, try not to swear too much. And when we have our Q&As at the end, uh, do please make sure you've got a microphone before you ask the question. Um, we'll all hear you in this room, but the people on the internet uh, all over the world won't. Um, don't worry, we will have someone walking around with a microphone. Uh, so just put up your hand and we'll get it to you. So the Formula One rules, and are they working? Are they good for the fans? Are they good for the teams? And are they good for the sport in general? We've just been through one of the biggest changes in Formula One in a generation. And now we've gone from 2.4 litre V8s to 1.6 litre turbo V6s with a huge emphasis on energy recovery systems. Not only that, but the fuel that each car can use has gone from roughly 160 kilograms to just 100. The fact that the cars are actually already pretty much matching the lap times from last year is absolutely amazing. Um, many people have questioned why we needed these regulations, especially when so many teams on the Formula One grid are struggling financially. They've been hugely expensive. 
and there have been critics of them. Some you will have heard of, Bernie Eccleston, Ferrari's chairman, Luca de Montezemolo, and actually many of the fans. Anyway, you're not here to listen to me speak, so could you please put together your hands for our panel and we'll get started. Mark, we'll, we'll start with you. You're sat right next to me. Um, you've been to all the races this year, and obviously for the, for the magazine, you write about your you know, trackside view. You've seen these cars up close. Um, let's talk about the sound. Lots of people have been talking about it. Is it, is it really that bad? Um, I personally don't think it is that bad. It's a lot quieter, much quieter, but um, the quality of the sound, I, I think, is better. Um, before, it was just a, like a blanket of noise, and now you can actually hear the various phases, the different phases of the corner. So in braking and in harvesting and in acceleration and path um, part throttle and cylinder cut and all those things, you can actually make them out much more clearly. And uh, so you can hear what's going on better. Um, I think the tone of them is great, uh, but it's not really coming across on TV. And I think... Um, probably we need to look at um, how, how the, the mics have been set up and um, I think they had a lot of baffling on them in the previous era and I think in a lot of cases they're still using um, the microphones from there so I think it's more a case of getting that um, quality of sound across on the TV and I think uh, probably most of the critics are, are, have only heard them on TV. There's been a few comments on the Motorsport website who say, well, you're a journalist, you're a you know, very privileged group who gets yeah, to true. get much closer to the, <laughs> um, but get much closer to the action, you're standing trackside. Is, it, is that a fair view if you're, stood, if you're sat in the grandstands, which nowadays are getting further and further away from the track? At some, at some of the big, um, the, 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 you know, the, the big tilkadrums, yeah, that's, that's probably a valid point. You, you are a, a, an awful long way away and they are you know, massively quieter um, somewhere like Montreal it's just bouncing off the walls and off the trees they sounded fantastic there and I'm pretty I mean, pretty sure it was loud enough for anyone to, to, to pick out you know the, the, the quality and the, the tone of the engines there just depends on the venue um, Andy just quickly coming to you recently Mercedes trialed a trumpet exhaust to try and sort of artificially make it a little bit noisier what was your opinion on that is that artificial or is, is that something that we need to do for the fans um, that, that, that was something we did in, um, in response to the comments in those opening races um, we um, I don't think any of us want to tear up the power unit and so it was a case of what can we do without disturbing the, um, the turbocharger um, and then just uh, a quick experiment just with a, with a tailpipe change. It, being an engineer, are you, are you of the view that it, the noisier a car is, the more wasted energy there is? Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's not a huge amount of energy in the noise. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the vast majority of the energy in the exhaust pipe is in the, is in the mass flow and the temperature um, of, of the gases coming out. Um, but, you know, it, it is something that the fans have asked for, um, for Formula One to have a look at what can be done. Um, we, uh, we tried something um, as quickly as we could at the first, first available test. Um, it, it worked reasonably well in the dyno, it didn't work well on the track. Um, there are some more tests being done by, um, by other teams um, at the Silverstone test. 
And you just mentioned there that obviously there was a reaction of the fans um, and you were asked to trial something. There's been a huge reaction from the fans about the double points at the end of the season. Is you know How come something like that can't be looked at or changed? Is, you know, just explain to everyone why that's so much harder to change once it's been decided. That's, that's probably one for, for Pat. Probably Pat's <laughs> an expert. <laughs> Passing the buck. Pat, do you want to take that up? Uh, do you mean the double points? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I find it uh, a little bit contrived, but uh, you know I'm as likely to benefit from it as to lose from it. Um, so I'll give you an honest answer straight after Abu Dhabi. Um, <laughs> but you know the, the thing with the rules is as long as the rules are the same for everyone, that's what you deal with. Personally, I would rather every race had the same value, but uh, if it's double points, so be it. Um, Andy, something I was going to come on and talk about is um, just off the back of the Austrian Grand Prix, another Mercedes one too. So congratulations on that. Three, four. <laughs> so we'll come to you in a second, Pat. Um, <laughs> six, six, seven. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was a race of saving brakes, saving energy recovery systems, saving tyres, monitoring all these things. Um, you know, to some people, Formula One is the pinnacle, despite going flat out for the race distance. Is this what Formula One should be? Should it be about monitoring and conserving every part of the car? Um, I, I, the, 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 the challenge through um, autumn and winter as you're laying out a car and laying out the size of the systems is is to come up with something that makes a fast car um, but isn't necessarily um, managing the overheads for every single circuit. And so you go to some circuits where brakes are a challenge, you go to some circuits where fuel's a challenge, um, um, etc. Um, Austria was uh, tough on fuel um, for some teams. Um, depending on the aerodynamic characteristics of the car. Um, it was tough on front brakes for some teams and not for others. Um, it was a, uh, an event where we were very mindful of the temperatures within our Earth system um, following the experience that and learning experience um, that we'd had in Canada. Um, and that's, that's often the case. You know, you have a, uh, you have a problem, you have a failure, um, and you react with some containment to uh, to manage the duty cycle and, and, and when you use it and when you don't. Would it, would it be safe to say that as we go into next year, everyone's had a year under their belt with these new regulations, with the new cars, that a lot of those systems are going to become less critical and you're going to be monitoring them less? Or by the very nature of Formula One, because you're pushing things to the limit, you're still going to be doing that? Uh, I, I think it'd be a bit of both. I think um, uh, I think all three of the manufacturers, power unit manufacturers for this year, will uh, uh, will have learnt a lot from going to um, uh, 19 races. Um, but there are also um, some some new technologies that are permitted for next year. So we're allowed variable inlet systems for next year. Um, so um, you know, there's the development of that and there'll be the learning process. Um, we try and leave the development in the factory for as long as possible, freeze it as late as possible, do the prove-out and go racing. Um, as with any technology, the prove-out doesn't always go to plan. Um, but in racing, you don't leave any contingency because you want the development phase to be as long as possible. Um, and that's why sometimes you get caught out and you react by... Um, uh, by managing the, 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 the on-track performance and recovering as quickly as you can. 
Pat, um, third and fourth in Austria. Um, we were talking to you before that uh, you're at, um, actually back at base for this race, and you said actually the you can do so much um, and you can keep abreast of everything that's coming up. How much more complicated, uh, from a team's perspective and an engineer's perspective, has a race become this year compared to last year? Um, we, we hear a lot more over the radio, um, and we get a sort of a glimpse of how much more there's to think about, or is that is that not not true? Yeah, I, I think uh, on the pit wall or the virtual pit wall, uh, there is an awful lot more to do. Um, the V8s were relatively simple to manage. We had our different engine modes. We had to manage our, our fuel because, you know, although everyone says it's a it's a fuel limited formula now, as far as I'm concerned, it's always been a fuel limited formula. We never put in more fuel than we need. Um, we've had to do tyre management in previous years <coughs> so really things haven't changed much other than the fact we have a lot more modes that we can run our power unit in so we have to choose those modes quite carefully to get optimum performance to keep within our operating limits um, a reasonable amount of it is let's call it semi-automatic but um, but still yeah there's a there's a much higher workload on the pit wall Kirsty, we were talking earlier about the work that Cosworth's doing on electronics in Formula One. Um, I, I was going to come onto this a bit later, but just to try and give everyone an idea of how you know Cosworth works on so many different forms of motorsport, whether it's Le Mans, IndyCar, um, where does Formula One sit with these new regulations? I mean, how advanced is it? Is it comparable to any other championship out there, or is it just way beyond any of them? I think it is definitely the one that you need to invest the most amount of money in to be successful in, and maybe Andy can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but in, in terms of the whole package on the car, not just the powertrain, but the electronics, the sensors, the steering wheel, any, any part of it is very much more complex than, in, than any other series. Although we do see uh, with the um, ACO's regulations and with uh, WEC that the regulations, obviously, because they have a, a similar but different, you know, a, an energy recovery, um, formula now as well for the LMP1 cars and we see that the electronics required in that is obviously as sophisticated and obviously we're very involved in that as a, as a series not just in terms of scrutineering but in terms of supply to different teams. Mark, do we, do we need this complexity in Formula 1? I think it's part and parcel of the, the new formula and I think we needed the new formula um, longer term. Um, as Pat says, is, is a, a huge increase in uh, the number of engine modes and um, it, it's sort of misleading to say that um, you're controlling them in, in, a, in a sense of uh, you're limiting you're, you're limiting performance. You, you, you're not. I mean, in the old days, you would have to run the engine in its most conservative mode all the way through in, in order to get it to the end. And now there's the possibility to have short periods of higher power. Um, and it's, it's more, more that. So, yeah, in terms of uh, control of the, the power units, yeah, it, it, I think it's part and parcel and it, it's, it's just you know, evolution. But um, the drivers are still, as long as the tyres are um, durable, um, the drivers are still able to, to drive on flat out. It's just they've, they've got a different setting on the steering wheel, but they're still, they're still able to drive them flat out. Um, what I didn't like, what I used to object to, was when we had sort of artificially 
poor tyres that you had to deliberately drive two, three seconds off the pace in the early stages when you were heavily fueled in order to get a competitive stint time. I didn't feel that was Formula One. I felt that was more what used to be endurance racing, which ironically enough, which, you know, the top teams all on Michelin's go flat out from start to finish. And it's, it seems that got, got that the wrong way around. So, um, but no, in terms of having uh, control on power units and mo monitoring that, no, I, I don't personally don't have a problem with that. Andy, we mentioned it just then, that the money. You know, these new regulations um, have cost a huge amount for every team, whether they are an engine supplier or they're not, or they're buying the engines. Um, it, was there a way to keep, you know, to update the rules, but for a, a smaller amount financially? I mean, it seems that this has cost such a huge amount at a time when so many teams are struggling. Um, if, if I think back to um, some of the changes that we've done in the past, then I, I don't think it's um, a, a, a huge amount of money. If I think back to um, um, the era where every year we were doing a new high-revving naturally aspirated engine and the development period that we had, um, we were spending considerably more money um, that, that, than we do today. Um, so um, and if, I, if I look at the development costs, <coughs> for the um, for the, for the V6 and the Earth system, um, and compare that with the the, the, the last uh, the the V8 that we did when we introduced that and um, and add curves in, then 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 this hasn't been more expensive. But from a, an independent team's perspective, um, has what are your views on that on the cost? Yeah, the the cost hurts. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, you've got to put these things in perspective. You've got to think about where they started. You've got to think about where they're going. And you've got to think about the path along the way. So if we go back to where they started, um, this was an initiative to, to have a, a more modern engine, which was decided in the days when all the talk was of CO2. Recession was something that happened a decade ago, and, you know, we weren't interested in it anymore. But there's quite a long gestation period for any change that's as radical as this. And by the time it, it came through, um, I won't say that CO2 was less important, but um, I guess if I was cynical and uh, I said that uh, energy independence was perhaps not the subject it had been a few years ago when we were fighting in the Middle East, etc., that's a very cynical view. Um, and of course, recession had impacted motorsport quite severely. Uh, we got these new power units at, a, at, one could say, the wrong time. But one has to take a, a longer term view of this. This is the right thing to do. You know, these power units are very similar to the power units that are going to be in road cars. In some ways, of course, already are. And it is a fact that the power units in your road cars are going to cost more. You know, you, you can remember old-fashioned, very simple power units with carburetors and push rods and things like that. Of course, they were cheaper to produce than even a, a modern, normally aspirated engine. And the next generation, or the current to next generation of road car engines, which are, are going to be downsized, turbocharged, highly hybridized engines, are going to cost more, but in the long run, that's what we need to do for society. 
Kirsten, your old job, you worked um, in the commercialization of Formula One technology into the automotive sector at Williams Advanced Engineering. Um, how much crossover is there from Formula One to the automotive sector? You know, we hear so many stories from various people saying, oh, well, this steering wheel's from, you know, from Formula One. I won't mention any names, but probably Ferrari. Um, tell, us, tell us a bit about how much actually is fed down into an everyday car. I think sort of picking up on Pat's point, um, now that the engine regulations are as they are, it is very much more obvious. I think it's in a pit, it's a pity, and it's something I said before, that we haven't called it the hybridization of a Formula One car rather than calling it ERS, because it would be something that the general public would actually understand a little a little more. They could see the relevance. I think it's technology that's not only necessarily just for automotive, but for other motive applications. And we may not have the same pressure or the same focus on CO2, but we do need to certainly recognise the, that there is a finite fossil fuel resource, and this is a way of, of, of taking, it, taking it out longer. But in terms of uh, some of the uh, electronics, obviously, if the, the um, power management systems that are on an F1 car, you're not going to take that straight away and put it on a, on a road car, even a supercar, but the principle is the same, because you are combining different sources of energy to create motive power. So it's, it's those sorts of things, and the, the beauty of motorsport, and particularly Formula One, is that the development cycle is so short. You're seeing something, and I think we spoke about it earlier, if you look at how, uh, how few cars had trouble-free running in the pre-season testing, to see how many cars finished the first Grand Prix, you, nobody would have, have made that connection between what they saw in pre-season testing to how, how well the cars actually ran in the first race and have continued to do so through the season, with some exceptions, clearly. And that kind of rapid development and problem solving is actually one of the things that the industry takes <coughs> can take into the automotive industry and also the carbon fibre technology. But again, it's not completely applicable in the way a Formula One car is built to how you would build a, an ordinary road car. Pat, just coming back to you for a second, um, should Formula One be relevant Sh or should it be a standalone championship that's exciting, that brings in millions of fans across the world? It should be relevant. Um, I think that Formula One is in a quite a difficult situation. It's a sort of, I don't know whether there is such a word, it's a sort of trichotomy that it's in. It doesn't know whether it's a business, a sport, or, or a technical exercise, and we have to sort of balance that. Um, but I do think it should be relevant, and, and I think you know the, the power units at the moment are a very good example of that. And while I might be slightly cynical about the CO2 side of things and how politicians seem to change their minds from, from day to day. One thing we do know is that fuel is expensive. Um, I noticed yesterday we're up over $60 a barrel again. And, you know, that, that hits us. Um, we are going to, all of us, as we drive our road cars, the fuel gets more and more expensive. And that, that matters to us. You know, we, we can't afford to drive cars that do 20 miles to the gallon anymore. So, so it is relevant. As a sport, it, it's quite difficult. You know, it, we, we have to have that side of it. We have to balance our engineering into being relevant. But ultimately, we have to provide entertainment. You know, that's where our income comes from. It comes from entertaining people. So we're a sport, we're an entertainment, we're a business, we're a technical exercise. It, it's a very difficult balance to, to keep correct. Andy, I saw you nodding there. 
I take it you agree. Yeah, just just the last couple of questions. Then um, you know the, the the reason for changing was to get a set of regulations where the the R and D facilities um, for any of the manufacturers that want to come in or or independents that want to come into Formula One are chasing conversion efficiency. So it's it's all about a fixed amount of fuel and how much useful energy can you get out of that and use it in a racing environment, using it in a real environment, not a laboratory environment. Um, and that's where motorsport is brilliant at accelerating technology from the laboratory to the real environment. And it's a very harsh, you know, very, um, you know, Sunday afternoon, your name's plastered all over the world if you've done a bad job or a brilliant job. Um, and so it's very important for the manufacturers that the regulations changed to match the missions of the road car world. Um, and CO2 emissions per kilometre, um, there are regulations that are there. Regardless of the political situations around the world that Pat, Pat's referring to, those regulations are coming in year by year and getting tougher and tougher. Um, here in Europe and all around the world, in China, in India, all those countries as well. So it's really important that we, um, we try and link the two together and encourage motor manufacturers into Formula One. Um, and we're seeing that with Honda coming in next year. Uh, can you, if you're a big car manufacturer, if you come into Formula One, you're, the money that you're going to spend on R&D as a road car manufacturer, can you offset any of that with the Formula One budget? Can, I mean, you know, we heard from Kirsty that while you can't take a part of a Formula One car and put it in a road car, if you're the boss of this company, can you change that, that budget and say, well, w while we're spending this in Formula One, we're actually taking it out of R&D because it's so much better? Um, t ten years ago, um, I would say manufacturers are in to have a fast, glamorous advertising hoarding going around the circuit. Um, these days, with the technology that we've, that we've just introduced, um, we saw it a bit with Kers, um to, to, to introduce a small hybrid aspect. Um, now, with what we've got with the, with the V6 and ERS, they are incredible bits of equipment. The thermal efficiency from the internal combustion engine is amazing the uh, power and energy density from the earth system is amazing and that is going to be transferred into road car um, and with all these new technologies they start with um, they start with the supercars you know if you look at Porsche with the 918 um, Ferrari with Le Ferrari um, it, it, it starts in, in that arena and then it filters down um, and I think that's the great thing about the regulations that we've got today that um, uh, Mercedes see the work that we're doing at Bricksworth as advanced R&D that will filter down into the road car world. Um, and we're already starting to do work for, um, for AMG, you know, high performance um, engines for the future. And, and I think one of the indicators that you would see is that traditionally the Formula One efforts of OEMs were, came out of marketing budgets and now they come out of R&D budgets. And that, that is a reflection of the fact that the engineering that's taking place is one that has, has a crossover potential, not always directly, but that, that it's pushing the boundaries. I think even if you look at WEC as well, that someone like Porsche and Audi are very clear that the reason they go racing is to prove technology that they will put in road cars. Mark, wasn't it Bernie Eccleston who said that he, he, he didn't care about the manufacturers in Formula One because they never stayed around for very long? I mean, I take it this changes things a bit if they are coming at it from a different angle. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're in it, as Andy was saying, um, probably their, their motivations 
slightly different now, but no, it, it, it rem remains a valid point that you, you can't get too reliant on uh, people that are just using the sport, uh, that it, 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 it's not their only business. Um, but uh, I think you still have to uh, encompass um, the direction that technology is going in. So, you know, the, you, I think the road car manufacturers should be welcomed in. Um, you shouldn't, I think it's uh, good that the, uh, y you attract as many in as possible, so the impact of any one of them leaving is, is less. Um, but I think had we just kept what we had, um, we'd probably lost Renault or may have lost Mercedes, I don't know, Andy will probably have a better idea on that. Um, we'd probably have Cosworth and Ferrari supplying the whole field. Um, it, with uh, technology that was very mature and hardly any difference, and now we have you know, t you know great differences between the the, the power. Plant. Technically, it's much more interesting. And uh, am I right that you can actually hear the difference between the cars on the track? You've, you've alluded to yeah, that, that's the Grand Prix you, you couldn't before. I think the last time I could hear the difference in the normally aspirated engines was in the the V10 era. The, the Honda was sounded different. But all the rest sound the same in the V8 era defy anyone to be able to pick out which engine was which. But in these ones, yeah, you, you can stand 10 minutes at the side of the track and you can definitely pick out which, which engines are which. Andy, would you, would you agree with um, Mark's statement there about the only manufacturers left in Formula 1 on the, run, on the engine side? Um, I think we would have ended up with a standard engine. And um, for the pinnacle of motorsport, to have a standard engine would have been criminal. You know, it's um, it's motorsport. Um, Mark, just staying with you for a second. Uh, for the website, you write extremely detailed Grand Prix reports, um, and uh, they've obviously gone out very well. But the average fan, can they understand everything that's going on behind the scenes? Because there's so much now, um, and the, the TV viewing figures are going down. Um, you know, we asked whether the new Formula One rules are a success. Surely, that's one of the biggest barometers that that you set your opinion by. Yeah, I think um, on with regard to TV figures, um, uh, two key um, markets have just gone pay to view this year. Uh, I think that's the main um, driver of, the, of that start. I think generally all sports are seeing a, a decline because there's so much more competition in uh, for, for people's times in all areas. I think that's just. Um, the state of the modern world, that's, that's the way it's going. It, uh, I don't think it's particularly uh, related to um, any particular problem that Formula One has, although there's, there's always room for improvement. Um, yeah, I, I, in terms of, in terms of um, the, 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 the getting the appeal of, of F1 across to the fans, uh, I, 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 don't th I think power units uh, will rapidly become a non-issue. I don't. Th I don't think that's where any of the problems lie. But I suppose, sorry, Kirsty. I was just going to say I don't think actually it's it's the um, size of the audience that should be the primary concern as much as the demographic, because it is aging. And I think that that's. I know it's a subject that's talked about a lot, but there are different ways that people enjoy entertainment, other than just watching it on the television. And I think that there's something that do, does need to be looked at. I think what will be interesting is something like Formula E, which is taking a very different approach to its engagement with fans, 
you know, um, you can tweet and they're going to get a push to pass opportunity or something for whoever gets the most. I don't know how they're going to make that work in practice, but um, <laughs> that will be, you know, I think it will be interesting to see what level engagement that, that does get. You know, it's an experiment, isn't it? Um, so Pat, what are your thoughts on this? How are the, in your opinion, sort of how, is, how can you make this sort of, I don't know, digestible, I think is the right word, for the, for the average fan who turns on maybe one every two Grand Prix? It's an interesting question, I think. Um, do you need to understand the offside rule to enjoy a game of football? I'm not, not sure you I do. You're speaking to the wrong person here, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm speaking to the wrong country, actually. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think one of the, you know we, we as engineers we, we love our cars we think we're we're racing cars but it's the, most of the fans are actually following the drivers we have to remember that um, but I think one of the great things about Formula One is you can take it at whatever level you wish to take it so if you are a casual viewer who who follows Lewis Hamilton or, or Nico Rosberg or, or whatever you can do it at that level. But equally, if you want to get involved technically, you can enjoy the technicalities at whatever level you choose to, to enjoy them at. Uh, and, you know, for an audience like this at the, the Institute of Mechanical Engineers, uh, I'm sure that they, they want to know to, to some depth what, what the technical aspects are. Um, but equally, there are many who don't. So it's a great sport in that you can take it in whatever level you wish. Andy, I'm probably going to, I'm asking this question to the wrong person, I think, but over the last few years, the, the focus has been on aerodynamics, um, and, you know, to some people that's quite a hard sell. Would you say that powertrains and the technology and the powertrains is, is an easier sell to people? Um, I, I pro Probably, yes. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the, the aerodynamics on the car, what, what, what connection is there with that and the road car that, that, that you drive? Um, maybe if you've glued a spoiler on the back of your car that you bought from Halfords, yes. But, um, you know, to, tr to try and look like a racing car, but um, um, the, 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 there's, there's no direct connection. Um, having direct injected, heavily turbocharged engines with a hybrid system in there that is providing performance. Um, and so you can, um, indicate to the world that hybrid hybrid's cool yeah hi hi hybrid hybrid isn't geography teacher yeah hi hybrid is Lewis Hamilton fast winning a Grand Prix God, I've got to stand up for the chassis engineers now <laughs> um, uh, a few years ago I, I was actually doing some work uh, for a very large OEM um, on aerodynamics of road cars and it was a very interesting bit of work that I was doing and, and the reason they engaged me to do that work was they wanted to understand how Formula One applied aerodynamics and how that could be translated into the road car industry and it's very interesting I think that when uh, a lot of people when they look at they, they ask the question what are we transferring from motorsport into road cars and they're looking for components and often it's not components you know you can go back to your whenever it was disc brakes on a jaguar and and you know the history like that but these days it's much more about technique uh, and one of the things i was able to do on that project was to show the techniques that we use in wind tunnel testing and cfd 
And we took, um, I, I'm afraid I can't say who the manufacturer was, but we, we took one of their cars, which had a, a drag coefficient of 0.24, which is a pretty damn good drag coefficient. We got it down to 0.22 just by applying some very simple techniques. Uh, and we had a target to get it down to 0.20, which was achievable by using uh, some of the tricks that we'd learned in Formula One, but certainly some of the techniques. Uh, and I think the same is true, you know, even on the powertrain side, that yes, you won't necessarily take that component from a racing engine and it, that's what you'll see on a, a road engine. But a lot of the technology that Andy is developing is technology that Mercedes are just sucking up to, to put into, into road cars. I'd just like to say I, I'm generally in favour of the, the, the slight shift in emphasis from aero to um, power plants. And one of the big changes made, which is often overlooked in this year's regs, is um, it's a big reduction in downforce um, from a set of regs that part help develop. And uh, they are uh, standing trackside watching the cars. They are vastly better to watch than the, the V8 generation of cars was there. You can see the drivers working. There they're, they're are bits of track that were just bent bits of straight before. The, 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 the cars are now struggling through it. Uh, and there's the, the kink after the um, hairpin in Montreal um, where Vettel got sideways during the race. Uh, it's just unthinkable that that would have ever happened in the, in the past, in the, in the dry anyway. And um, I, I, th I think we should be going further. Um, and uh, what would be interesting is how that would tie in with um, you'd be if if you went further in losing downforce, you'd also be going further in losing drag, and you'd able you'd be able to limit the fuel even further. So it'd be a good headline to to shout to shout about, um, and I think that's definitely a direction we we should be looking at going in. And can you is there a bigger discrepancy between the drivers now? Can you? Is it easy to see the great drivers versus the good? I wouldn't say so. No, um, it, it was. Um, it's it's more that they're all visibly working, um, whereas before it was the the car that was visibly working than the driver sitting in it. Now you can see the inputs the dr the drivers are making. Pat, we were talking about this earlier. You know, a new set of regulations come up, and then for the next few years, the, all the teams play catch up. Are we going to lose this excitement when you're watching trackside as? The aerodynamicists find that downforce that they lost. I mean, is it, are they going to gain as, as much back? Uh, not in the way they used to. Um, it's a fact that if you, you close down the design space, then of course it becomes more difficult to find performance. But you've got to remember that you know we've been very focused on on powertrain when we've been talking about uh, new regulations. But there are a lot of other new regulations that have come in as well. We have Mark mentioned the reduction in aerodynamic downforce, but Perhaps more importantly is within the sporting regulations, we have a, a reduction in the amount of aerodynamic research that we can do. And uh, I think at the World Council meeting tomorrow, there'll be announced a, a further reduction uh, where we come down to 65 wind tunnel runs from our, our current 80 a week. And um, that's going to make it significantly more difficult to, um, to catch up in the way we used to. Uh, and we're... we're we started a, a new regime of, uh, of aerodynamic testing that we, we call 30-30, which balances sort of 30 hours of wind on time and uh, 30 teraflops of, of CFD usage. 
Uh, we've been running that since mid-January, so now we've got a, a pretty good idea of, of what that has done to our, our rate of development compared to previous years, and it's hit it. You know, it, it really has. The the week-on-week -week points of downforce that we're looking for have, have reduced significantly. Um, we're making a further reduction. It will take time to catch up to, to where we are. And I agree with Mark. You know, uh, I, I like to see cars moving around. You know, I, I love watching rally cars, actually, because, you know, you, you can see the guys working so hard and so little grip and, and things. Um, and, of course, there's no reason why we can't cut downforce further. Um, it's, it's a relatively simple and it's a, certainly a low-cost thing to do. And now we've, at source, we've attacked the the cost of the aerodynamic research, which of course spills all the way through, you know, the number of people you've got designing your car, the number of updates you're bringing to your car. Um, it, it's a pretty good thing and it will take a long while to get back to the levels of downforce that we enjoyed last year. Andy and Kirsty, we've just heard, you know, two people here who are before taking away even more downforce from the cars. Uh, are you of the same opinion and, and what's stopping Formula One, you know, making these changes? Is, is, will it be an easy change? Um, I, I'd, um, I'd encourage the, re the removal of uh, more downforce. I think it has made the cars a lot more exciting to, um, to, to, to watch um, and it makes the power unit more important. And I would echo that. Um, the, uh, I think the other thing to, to recognise in terms of the power unit is, is how light they are. And that's one of the things that certainly an OEM is attracted to in the sort of work, whether it's directly for a team or for an independent company like ours is that actually clearly if you want to make a lightweight power unit you start with that as a design objective but it still allows you to take uh, a heavier unit and and make it considerably lighter like we did with um, Aston Martin took over 20% of the weight out of the engine but it's so it's that sort of design principle and also the other thing that is particularly attractive and when we're talking about technology transfer is that when you're involved in in motorsport in Formula One you design manufacture and operate your product most other industry sectors don't do all three elements and actually in in formula one itself the bit that the independent teams don't do is design operate and manufacture their engine that's done independently so that's where s someone like mercedes has has gained the benefit because it's it's in charge of its its whole destiny all all together if you like but that's that is a really unique perspective for formula one design manufacture and operate and, uh, you know, obviously we know why it's losing weight from an engine and something like an Aston Martin is very important, any road car. Um, but Formula One, even though they're allowed fewer engines this year, surely it's a different type of approach because while Aston Martin is going for performance, they're also going for longevity as well. Um, can you still, is there still a link there with Formula One? Because uh, I know there's obviously reliability is very important, but it's, it's a racing car for a set number of races and then that's it. And that's just about deciding what the duty cycle you want the engine to survive. So again, it's back to the design parameters you start at the beginning. So the amount of weight you might have taken out of a, a V12 to put it in a, in a racing car is going to be different to putting it into a road car, even if it is a supercar. So it just is about the design parameters and setting what your duty cycle is. What, what is it? How many, how many kilometres do you want to do before you have to service it or rebuild? And obviously that depends on your competitive environment. And I guess in Formula One, people would be in, would rather they weren't having to to do it as as often as it may come to at the end of the season if we've seen some of the reliability issues be interesting to see how many engines people actually do use by the end of the season 
that will be one of the challenges. And are you worried about that or you're all, all okay on your engine count? Um, it's a bit like the answer Pat gave, I'll tell you in Abu Dhabi after the race. <laughs> um, just go back to the, the drivers for a second. Pat, is, the cars are obviously harder to drive, but it, do the drivers now need to be sort of engineers? I mean, you know, the, God, it, this I is not. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they are obviously more technical and it's a much bigger challenge for the driver because there's so much more going on, surely. Yeah, uh, interesting, you know, about whether they're more difficult to drive or not. Um, I think we certainly see the cars moving around a lot more. But I, I think one of the very interesting things about... Um, about this year is yeah we've got a hell of a lot more torque available and prior to running the cars uh, last winter i was thinking wow you know we've got a lot to deal with here um but in reality it, it was a an object reminder in it's not the sort of sheer amount of torque that you've got but it's how it's delivered and um treading into Andy's territory here who knows a lot more about this than I do but but with normally aspirated engines we were spending a lot of time working with inlet and exhaust geometries to try and smooth what was a, a pretty poor torque curve a very lumpy torque curve uh, and one of the things we got now is yeah we've got a lot of torque but we've got great delivery of that torque uh, and I think if we had the sheer amount of torque that we've got now but we had a curve like the normally aspirated then you'd see some skill involved. Um, so to answer your question, do the drivers need to be engineers? No, no they don't. Um, you know, what I want from a driver is the, the ability to drive a car goes without saying. Um, but what I want is, I don't, I don't want him doing a mathematical analysis of what's going on. I want to, him to give me an honest answer about how easy it is to achieve the mission that we've given him, which is to drive fast and if it's difficult what is it that's making it difficult and uh, interestingly uh, a few months ago I, I was actually over at Airbus and uh, I was talking to the, their chief test pilot who uh, as some of you may know has the name of Fernando Alonso and uh, we were talking about the similarities between what he needs from his test pilots and what we want from racing drivers in terms of developing the car and they're very, very similar. He, he expects his pilots to be able to fly a plane to a very high quality. I expect drivers to be able to drive a car fast. You know, that goes without saying. It's then the added value that they give, uh, which is not necessarily being an engineer. They don't have to solve differential equations to, to make their car go faster. They need to understand what's going on and they need to be able to describe it concisely and accurately. Andy, how have you found the feedback from Nico and Lewis? Um, they seem to have two slightly different approaches. Um, how, as, as Pat was saying there, what you want is you know, them to go as fast as possible, but surely they're giving you a lot more feedback than that. Um, both Lewis and Nico have been um, heavily involved in the way we've um, uh, developed the, um, uh, the power unit and especially the, the, the control systems. Um, the, um, the, there isn't a curse button anymore. Torque delivery is just on the on the uh, on the right pedal, the go faster pedal, um, and um, and actually the uh, torque delivery to target is easier with these engines because we've got um, yeah we've got a huge compressor um, and people normally talk about turbo lag, but we've got a big electric machine 
connected to that compressor. So the speed control of the compressor is perfect because we've got a electric machine to control it. And the fuel delivery is perfect because we've got direct injection. So the torque delivery to target, the drivability, as the driver would refer to it, is better on these turbocharged hybrid power units than it was on the naturally aspirated um, V8s, which um, I think surprised everybody and was one of the first bits of feedback we got from um, from all eight of the Mercedes um, uh, power unit drivers um, that, wow, that's a lot of torque, but actually the, the, the consistency of delivery, um, which I think is important for a driver. You know, there's, um, as Pat said, it's about um, a driver feeding back to us, what can we do to help them to make it easier to stay right on the edge and um, torque delivery to target doing absolutely the same every single lap is a key thing for the power unit and it's easier um, we'll come on to some questions from the floor in a second so if you you know do think of some um, but quickly we've we've all been sort of I think talking about how the new Formula One regulations are actually very good. Um, so I think it's probably an ideal time, Mark, to remind you of your Formula One revolution uh, piece from the April issue of the magazine. If, so I'm sure most of you have read it, but if, could you just let everyone know sort of what, what you were talking about and, and why Formula One needs this change? Yeah, it was, in many ways, it was an idealized vision, um, uh, uh, but uh, the, I made the point that um, that, that shouldn't mean we, we, we don't strive for what we think is ideal. Um, probably not all of it um, immediately achievable, but uh, what um, the, the it basically was based around the, the current formula, uh, the current technical formula, um, but I was talking about trying to uh, reduce downforce further. I was trying, I was talking about trying to impose serious cost controls which uh, would then allow the technical regulations to be freer. And I was talking about uh, less control from the teams of the drivers so that the personalities of the drivers come through more. And that's something that's, that, that latter point is something that's uh, seemed to strike a chord with a, a lot of readers. And um, I suggested, you know, what, for instance, um, what about uh, no uh, pits to driver communication at all, so they've got to work out their own fuel settings and uh, you know power. So you know maybe have something where you know the, the only uh, thing would, that would be allowed would be safety related ones. Uh, and it was just a yeah, as a combination of uh, looking at each of of the areas and looking long term where Formula One uh, would ideally um, be trying to head. Andy, I saw you nodding there um, with the pits to driver communication. Do you do you agree, disagree with that? Um, unfortunately, that happens some races in any case. <laughs> um, so I was nodding, reminiscing um, about the odd race this year where we've lost the radio and we've lost telemetry. Um, and we end up with engineers looking at the TV feed, um, the in-car TV feed, looking at the, um, at the dash display, working out how the driver's getting on with fuel. <laughs> um, Pat, do you, do, would you agree with, with what Mark's saying here about the sort of the cost controls? Um, I should take that one first. Uh, cost controls and motive subject, isn't it? Um, 
And uh, I guess if I can get my hobby horse a little bit, I think that we're talking about new rules and, and I think one of the things that we haven't done particularly well is to control costs in Formula One. The, the step between Formula One and most other forms of racing financially is a quantum step and I think that's something we need to address. Uh, I think we've done a, a spectacularly poor job of it recently. Um, and there are far too many people grinding their own axes to, to ever get the unanimous support that these things need. So uh, I certainly feel that we've probably gone a bit too far uh, and we need to start reining in costs. It's not a sustainable business at the moment. We need to do something about it and we're not doing it. Um, in terms of other, other suggestions, uh, yeah, I think that it's interesting what Mark says, but I, I still regard motor racing as a team sport. And I like to see everyone in the team contributing. You know, we did a, a 2.1 second pit stop in Austria. Now that gives the guys a buzz. They, they really feel that they contributed to our result. Um, and why shouldn't they? And why shouldn't the engineers contribute to it? You know, it's not all about driver and machine. It's a it's a team sport, so um, I'm reasonably happy with the way things are. Um, there are certainly times I'd like to turn the radio off, though. <laughs> Andy, would you agree that, that we need to cut costs, and that's, that should be at the forefront of discussions? Um, it's, it's important that we keep it sustainable, um, and it's important that we've, um, uh, we've got a, uh, a good number of cars on the grid, um, and... Um, uh, enough teams. There's no point having one team providing 22 cars. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I think I think this is a topic that's been worked on for um, uh, for many years, and we've not yet got to a um, got to a good solution. Um, we have made some some very good steps though o over the years. You know, I spoke earlier about sort of 10 years ago the the cost of a Formula One ten, uh, naturally aspirated engine 10 years ago. Um, was more um, than it is today for a V6 turbocharged, direct injected, you know, two electric machines and a big battery. Um, and that's been done because the engine manufacturers have taken on board uh, the aspect of how many power units is the production run. Um, the intention for these rules was that it would be four power units per driver per championship. And that's what we've got for next year. Um, we all agreed in a regulation meeting that it might be a bit tough in the first year and therefore we should have five in the first year, which is why the number is five um, this year. And that does pull down the production costs. Um, and you've got to make the rules severe, that um, if you take the sixth one, it's a, it's a big grid penalty. Um, and that has you know, driven the engine manufacturers to go from 50 kilometer qualifying engines, you know, that you fitted new pistons just before they went out the door and you were sending 12 engines to each garage um, and you'd use them all through a race weekend. Um, you know, the costs were crazy, the production costs were crazy just 10 years ago. Um, and tightening down on that has reduced the costs um, for a propulsion unit. Um, I think we probably need to do more in some of the other areas. But I, I think it's interesting what, what Andy brings up here because um, 
Yeah, we, we're talking about regulation changes. We're talking mainly about technical regulations. And, of course, with our, our Formula Student connection, with our Institution of Mechanical Engineers connection, of course, we'll be talking about engineering changes. But history has shown over the last few years that actually the, the cost saving has come from changes to the sporting regulations rather than technical regulations. So long life engines, things like that, are not actually technical regulations, they're sporting ones, the reduction in testing, all these sort of things. So um, you can't blame everything on the engineers, that's for sure. Um, right, I think this is a good opportunity to, to open up the floor to some questions. Um, do just raise your hand and Robert will come and find you with a microphone. Um, I think we have also might have some questions from the webinar, um, if Fiona's got any of those, um, and also from social media. But do please ask away, it's a great opportunity to speak to some of the uh, greatest minds in the sport. Um, this is Andrew Bodman. I've uh, got a question for the full panel really, and it's a rather idealistic question, perhaps you can treat it as idealistic in your answer as well. Um, there are rumours that there are three or four Formula One teams that are having a certain amount of financial difficulty at the moment, um, and therefore, if you like, it, that's partly due to the inequitable distribution of money at the end of the year. So my idealistic suggestions are, all the money that currently goes to CVC stroke Bernie Eccleston is ploughed back into the primarily the teams and a little bit into the actual race um, promoters like Silverstone and the, the other circuit providers. That's one thing you, you plough it back into the into the sport into the teams. And the other thing is, rather than it being based on finishing position and points, you give every team the same amount of money at the end of the year. But how does that reward success? Uh, why, why is that inequitable? Um, because the small teams like um, Marussia and Caterham are struggling financially. And one of the reasons they struggle financially is because they get so little income at the end of the year. If you want to have um, 11 teams running successfully year after year after year sustainably, then they need to have a better share of money. And the, and the small teams can't survive easily on the small amount of money they get. I think that's different maybe in terms of the regulation. There needs to maybe be some balance and, and capping. But I, 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 having been involved in motorsport for a long time, I sort of don't get the concept of if you finish first, you don't get more reward than anybody else. You, you talked about a, an idealised world. I think in an idealised world, the, 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 the sport would be owned by the participants. Uh, and the teams would have a franchise in the sport. And um, I, I, I think I, I, I agree that, that uh, I, th I don't like the principle of uh, mediocrity not being punished. And um, I think you, you should get more uh, for, for winning than, than not. Um, but I think it should be a, a business model where each of the uh, each of the teams has a sustainable long-term business and I think the income that F1 generates, uh, there's no reason why it, it couldn't be. But the uh, more successful teams are likely to get better sponsorship rewards. Yes, the, I, I think the current uh, income distribution is inequitous, yes. I think um, it's an interesting suggestion and it's not a new one and believe it or not, Bernie has offered to the teams quite recently that all the income is split evenly. It was not accepted by the teams. Um, may, maybe by some of them. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, even earlier on, I probably fell into the same trap myself. We do keep talking about cost saving uh, and we're not talking enough about income generation. 
So as far as the teams are concerned, yes, it'd be very nice to have a, a larger share of the pot. But for a global sport, that pot is not very big. And that's uh, another area we should be looking at. You know, you, you look at what the Premier League is is pulling in as a, an income uh, and uh, how successful it is for, you know, even the, the lower teams, the parachute payments they, they can have, etc., etc. Well, for a global sport, we're, we're not doing particularly good on generating income. Thank you very much for that. Is there another question from the floor? Thank you. John Fox. Um, I do wonder how real the, some of the cost savings that have been introduced uh, through the uh, number of engines and gearboxes restrictions and uh, also the, the testing freeze uh, and the engine freeze actually are because I'm a bit concerned about perhaps the unintended consequences for the, the sporting nature of the game. Um, at the weekend we saw Sebastian Vettel retire or his car was retired to save engine mileage. I didn't think that was allowed actually but maybe it is now. Um, that raises the possibility that in the future 10 cars will finish each race or maybe 11 because the thing is a sniff of a point at the end of it. Um, also the engine freeze it seems to me uh, stops people catching up. It was something that you said Pat that the wind tunnel thing you know the, the restrictions on that will stop people catching up. Um, Mercedes seem to have a bit of a stranglehold on the championship at the moment and frankly I'm worried that that won't change now and therefore why am I watching the rest of the series? Uh, and it's been like that really for the past four years, I would say now, where teams seem unable to catch up. One team dominates and there isn't a swing of fortune throughout the season. So I suppose two parts of the question really is how real are the real cost savings and is the impact on the sporting spectacle unacceptable? I can um, have a good go at that one. Um, I think the, um, <laughs> um, I, I know from um, first-hand experience over the last 10 years working for Mercedes that the... Um, the, the, the budget's gone down on an annual basis and the biggest driver has been the um, the requirement for the engine to do more so you don't buy as many bits because um, typically it's the same amount of parts that you need to do a prove out um, so if you can reduce your production cost the number for the 19 races you're better off um, uh, is, is the freeze bad for us this year? Um, Fuel isn't frozen, um, oil isn't frozen, calibrations aren't frozen. And when you look at the performance steps that um, Renault and Ferrari have made this year, um, they're considerable. Um, and that will carry on throughout the year. Um, and the engines, the V6R systems aren't frozen um, into the future. Every year we can do a new version. Um, for next year there's a uh, or for every year there's a there's a list of areas that we can work on performance areas um, based on making the power unit more efficient uh, making that conversion efficiency greater from the fuel energy to useful um, useful propulsion energy um, and each year the number that you can pick from that diminishes but in the opening year so the transition from 14 to 15 it's quite a big list so Ferrari and Renault have got a great opportunity to, um, to, to catch us up um, for next year. Um, and when you look at the improvements they're making through the year, you know, we're, we're, we're looking over our shoulder um, and, and, and keeping a close eye on that this year. So I think with the way the sporting regulations, again, have been set up, you're not locked into being in the down on power brigade and getting all grumpy and asking for a dispensation for an upgrade like um, Renault and Honda asked for in 2008. 
Um, so hopefully we do maintain healthy competition, but with some cost control because it's only four power units per driver. Uh, I'd just add to that that I believe, I, I can't remember my numbers exactly, but I think that in 2000 uh, at Benetton, I think our engine bill was higher than it is now. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's in real terms, that's not inflation adjusted or anything. And I sold the engine gears to most of these people at the time because I worked for Extrac and yes it is a lot different now. And, that, and they were very expensive. <laughs> Reassuringly expensive. Good quality. <laughs> Have we got uh, another question from the floor? Um, it was touched on briefly earlier, um, talking about the aerodynamics, but um, how do you feel about the um, amount of variation in the front nose cones designs on the car? Obviously, you take you compare something like Lotus to Ferrari to Force India, they're, they're so different. Do you think that's an advantage, or do you think it would be better if they were all clips, they were a bit more similar? I'm glad someone brought up noses, nose height, because uh, you know, we, we've sort of ignored that. And uh, bearing in mind this is a, a Formula student presentation, um, I'd just like to, to tell a little story about that. Um, the drive to, um, to low noses has been done for safety reasons. Uh, and I think one of the things, we, we, obviously we're, we're concerned with every accident that can happen in Formula One, but we're particularly concerned with, with accidents where a car is launched because at that point we can be involving people who really shouldn't be involved. Now what I mean by that is that drivers take an acceptable risk in driving the car. We, we want to minimise that risk, of course we do, um, both actively and passively. But I think what worries us all more than anything is a flying car that we can no longer control either involving marshals or even worse spectators. And uh, the 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 low noses that uh, have now been introduced are the result of uh, a program uh, looking at what launches a car and what the propensity to launch is compared, comparing nose heights, energy absorption, etc. And that's a, a program that's actually started by a student who was sponsored by Benetton uh, back in similar sort of time, maybe late 90s or so, uh, a student at Cranfield University by the name of Joanna Gibson, I think she's married now and changed her name, but uh, it, it was a great illustration, I think, of how students can contribute. Uh, okay, it's a long while on, but it was work that was actually started by students. That's a little aside, it didn't really answer your question, but I, I did want to get that, that in somewhere. Um, I think it, it, it's, uh, I, I can't say that some of the designs are the prettiest things we've ever seen, but at least there's some uh, variation in them. And uh, the, the rules for next year have actually, I think, got rid of some of the more extreme uh, things that we've seen this year. I, I say I think because uh, who knows, you know, we, we try and write these rules and we don't really spend enough time seeing what the unintended consequences are. Uh, and it's not to say that someone won't come up with something quite bizarre, but we've 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 tried to learn from this year and tried to improve them. So the the rules that they're going through World Council tomorrow, uh, I, I think, will uh, will at least make the cars look a little bit more attractive. 
This one's uh, from the webinar. Um, with Formula Student, uh, the technical regulations uh, are very open. What advice would you give to the teams who are basically competing in two weeks um, to balance stretching the engineering envelope and actually meeting the deadline, which is a running car at the event? So how would you go about balancing an open rule book and getting sort of engineering innovation in that rule book to getting a completed car ready for competition? One of the things I love about Formula Student, uh, and one of the reasons why, as an employer, it certainly becomes a differentiator when we're, we're looking to recruit people, is that it is a microcosm of what we do in motorsport. And that deadline is such an important thing. You know, we, we can't phone up Bernie and say, oh, we're a bit behind on making our, our diffusers this week. You know, can, can you put the race off till Monday? It doesn't happen. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that the students learn and they, they um, I think we, yes, I certainly remember when I was a student, it was always left to the last minute, wasn't it? Uh, and uh, uh, Andy alluded earlier to the fact that you're trying to leave your development as late as possible because that adds performance. Uh, and I, I think that the, the Formula Student Programme has got a really good balance of that. It, very open regulations, uh, but that deadline that will not move. So to answer the question, how do you exploit it? You, do, you, you leave your development time as long as you can, but that means you've got a plan and you've got to run your program through to that event at Silverstone in a couple of weeks. You know, that's not going to change. Uh, it's very good training and it, it, uh, it means that engineers have to have their feet on the ground and they have to have a, an element of reality which is very important to them as they, they follow their careers in later life. It also means you need to buy into the plan as a team, not just somebody's idea of when the, when the end date can be for design and development. You all have to be aligned with it and then everybody has to work to make sure it happens because the one thing you can be certain of is if you don't run you get no points. <laughs> Are there any more questions from the floor? There's, yeah, one there. How do you think it would have been if the V6 and the turbo hadn't been stipulated, if the FIA had just said you've got to reduce the amount of fuel you use to 100 kilos and just left it as open as that? It would have cost an awful lot more money, uh, which is why we... Uh, uh, the, the reason why there are some defined numbers in the technical regulations are to control the development cost um, from regulation release to first race um, so that we didn't do a whole load of research on the bore size, on the number of cylinders, on the V-angle, on the crankshaft centerline height, all of which we thought weren't great for thermal efficiency improvement. Um, uh, but that's not answering your question. Um, uh, if it had been completely free, we would have ended up with less cylinders, lower RPM, more boost, um, uh, three cylinders in line, huge amount of boost, little bit more efficiency, but a ridiculous amount of cost. Any more questions from the floor? We can probably say, yeah, one more, one or two more. There's one right in the back there. How do you decide? Um, uh, I would assume that the, um, 
the performances are not identical in all the engines that you supply to the teams. So how do you decide what engines to give to Williams and not the ones you, you keep? How should I answer that one, Pat? Um, honestly, please. Honestly. <laughs> um, we, um, we spend a lot of time in the development phase, as we've, uh, we've referred to. And then we've always found that the best thing to do is to have one bill of materials. So one parts list and make lots of those bits and test lots of them. Um, both in the factory and at the test track, so in Hareth and the eight days of Bahrain testing. Um, we endeavoured to have exactly the same power unit spec um, across all four cars, which gives us more data points, which just helps with our statistics on knowing um, how durable it is. Um, and then we um, are fortunate that through the V8 period, we did a huge amount of learning on what um, introduces variability on the performance of the engine. So when we were in that freeze period, how did we do our development? We narrowed the gap between best and worst. Um, we used to have a 1% to 2% difference across 10 engines, um, and we narrowed that down to 0.1%, 0.2%. Um, and the natural characteristics of the turbocharged um, engine are that that gap's narrowed even further because there isn't so much performance from the tuning of the engine which can be upset by small little changes in shape and coking up. Um, so actually the spread across the engines when we pass them off is even narrower than it was on the V8, um, which means that we take the same parts list and we just adjust it for wiring, hoses, so just the small installation changes, and that determines whether it's a Silver Arrows engine or a Williams engine or a Force India engine or a, or, or a McLaren engine. Um, and then operating at the circuit, um, yes, we do development first with the works team. Um, but then we pass it on once we've, um, we've done that development period and we believe it's safe to hand on without needing an army of engineers to look after it. Um, and the only other difference is the, um, the, the, the fuel types. Um, uh, McLaren run with um, ExxonMobil product. Other than that, they're identical. And as you can see at the weekend, um, Williams, the customer, was on the front row of the grid and it was a tough fight all the way through. If I could just jump in here. Obviously, McLaren is going to use Honda powertrains next year. Does your relationship with them this year change at all because of that decision? Um, no. Um, we're, um, you know, it's been, a, it's been a long, long period, um, the relationship between Mercedes and McLaren, and we've enjoyed success together. Um, we've enjoyed some, or endured some miserable times together. It's always miserable if you're not winning. Um, but it's, um, uh, there, there are some great relationships. Um, and there's a there's a there's a strong professionalism from both sides. So um, if we ask that um, uh, things are looked after with a little bit more security, McLaren have obliged. Um, uh, and um, we're you know we're, we're the, the 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 information about our engine can be gleaned by all the manufacturers that we're racing with today um, via GPS analysis and via photographs into the garage as we're changing bits of bodywork and so on and they're plastered all over the internet. So, um, 
Yeah, it, it provides McLaren with an advantage working with us this year in terms of perhaps setting some targets in terms of what is achievable in terms of volume and heat rejection and, and shaft power. Um, but we're not going to stand still. Um, and Honda, I guess, have got a disadvantage that they're coming in as in their first year when it's everybody else's second year. And we spoke about earlier about, you know, what are the improvements going to be from Renault, Ferrari and ourselves for next year. So it's um, it's a professional relationship. We trust in the confidentiality um, um, aspects and arrangements that are set up and um, we're all just running our own race. We got any more questions? Probably time for one more. If not, we will wrap it up. Oh, yeah, one right at the back. Hang on, we got a microphone coming to you. Uh, just one away from the engineering aspect of things. Just wondering uh, how you think um, that F1 can engage more with its audience and the spectators, maybe through social media or or just involving um, the spectators more. Yeah, I think it um, has just already been said. It needs to um, have a, a, a more open-minded out, outlook uh, on new media. Um, and I think that that's that's one thing. Um, also, uh, I think listening uh, to what to what the fans say they want, but uh, bearing in mind that uh, when you try and introduce uh, solutions that are artificial, such as sticking megaphone exhaust pipes on or putting skid blocks on the bottom of the car to make sparks, there's it. it, it people see through that, and the 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 the, the the reaction to both those things has has been, I I believe, um, more vitriolic than than uh, than than any changes to formula or anything like that. So uh, yeah, I, th I think you need to be careful uh, in, in in what you change, and you need to be looking at pr properly thought out solutions as well. Mark, I'm, I must ask, uh, what do you think about this uh, tweeting and getting a boost in Formula E next year? I'm appalled. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, one of the things that we need to do, which something like this obviously uh, is attempting to do, is actually help people understand how interesting a high-performance engineering challenge like Formula One is. Yes, not everyone is going to get it from a, a technical aspect. A lot of people are going to watch Formula One because they want to see which celebrity walks on the grid before the race starts or who they speak to in the paddock. Me, not so much. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's a way to, to help get people interested in engineering and see it's a vibrant and interesting career. And I think that's something that the teams do participate in, I think, with um, F1 in schools and, and, and is something, obviously, there's two of the teams are supporting here, but it's something that we do need to do more to get people interested in engineering right, right from the start when they're in primary school. Who likes maths? Loads of children don't put their hands up. Well, who likes Formula One? They all put their hands up. Two things don't go together. Um, I think that's my conclusion actually done. So thank you for that, Kirsty. It's absolutely perfect. Um, I thank you so much to all four of you, uh, Kirsty, Andy, Pat, and Mark. Um, it's been absolutely enlightening for me. I'm sure it's been the same for you. So please put your hands together for our panel tonight.
Let's go.